doesn't want to be a vampire when you're watching that film because then you're absolutely delightful in a non-sparkly way. Fantastic. And it leads to a, a very much, I think, I think we both do much more effective ending in the original than in the remake. Have you seen this one? No, but I'm going to now. So maybe it doesn't have the same effect on the two of you, but I had to get up and leave. I'm like, oh my God. Hey, we're switching it up today. Welcome to the Fright Club podcast. He's George Wolf. <laughs> and she's Hope Madden. Wow, this is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Hope we haven't thrown anybody off. Yeah, the Fright Club podcast. And we got a great uh, special guest that we've been actually working to have on for a while now, it seems. And um, a great set of movies to talk about. Another topic where it seems like we should have done this before, but we haven't. Because I think we're up to, I think this is episode 250. Wow. What? Uh, but we'll get to this topic and some great movies to talk about. But, as always, we've got to thank the great crowd at Gateway Film Center. Last time we did uh, Fright Club Live. We talked about contagions and we showed antiviral Cronenberg, which is going to have a lot of uh, carryover to uh, to this week's episode. But people liked, the good news is people liked antiviral a lot better than they liked Hagazusa. The other good news is we've had a we've had a groundswell team Hagazusa. So oh, really? yes, we've had some people who have posted online that no, they did enjoy Hagazusa. They just didn't sort of they were drowned out by the many 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 people at the screening who did not like Hagazusa. So there are at least two other people on my side of this conversation. At least two. I was yeah, going to say two. so. Is that two? that's a groundswell? That's a groundswell. Because <laughs> I was going to say if there were these silent hordes. I didn't see them at the screening. Where were these people? It's a good movie. <laughs> I think it is, too. Don't get me wrong. I think it is, too, but the, the silence was deafening yeah. when it was over. You know, they they can't all be crowd pleasers, but this one was, I think, antiviral. People like the creepiness right, except for Captain Metoxin, who um, he, he doesn't like David Cronenberg, and now it's official he also doesn't like Brandon Cronenberg, so... So That's the, just dumb, by the way. Official, You're just wrong, Captain Metoxin. Official beef between <laughs> Metox and Cronenberg clans. That's right. That, yeah, that's. <laughs> I, I don't get that, but hey, that's okay. Thank you for that. Um, always a great crowd, either way, at Gateway Film Center for Fright Club Live. But now we're back in the studio, and uh, like I said, we've been working to have a, the special guest on, and let's welcome him in straight from, well, right outside of New York City, uh, filmmaker Jeremiah Kip. Welcome. Hey, you guys. It's a privilege to be here. We're very excited to have you here. Um, we're big fans of Slapface, which is yes. your film that we love that inspired the topic for this. And is that still on Shudder? Where can people find Slapface? It is, yeah. I mean, I always I always leave people to Shudder. It's a Shudder original, and I really love uh, their programming. So I was really honored do too. to be yeah. part, of, part of that whole thing. Shudder is great. Uh, but it's also on AMC Plus and Amazon Prime and a bunch of other streaming services. But like, if you want to go to the OG streaming for Slap Face, it's uh, <laughs> Shutter, which is you know, I mean, it's affordable per month, and they have so much great programming. I can't speak enough about uh, the good company that Slap Face is in on that uh, platform. Yeah, agreed. It seems like every week, because we have another a weekly podcast that reviews movies just of all genres, and we talk about a Shudder movie, it seems like every week we just keep saying, man, Shudder's bringing it. Oh, Shudder's yeah. got the stuff, and yeah. they do. We we love Shudder. Yeah, we're big, big fans. And then, I don't know if you want to talk about it a little bit. I know that we're 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 looking forward to, George, George and I are looking forward to an upcoming film of yours, Boo Hag. Yeah, Boo Hag was the feature that I directed after Slapface. We shot it down in Savannah, Georgia. It's another folk horror story of sorts. It's set within the Gullah Geechee community, which is uh, 
an island community and the monster is very specific to that region, the Buhag. Um, it was really incredible to make and it took a long time in post because there was a lot of uh, visual effects. Mm -hmm. It's not visual effects like a Marvel movie. There's a practical monster that uh, VFX builds on top of, yeah. you know, so it's so it, and it's not like the thing remake where they just pasted VFX over the really wonderful practical effects. It's like a combination of practical and visual effects. But there were a lot of them for perspective, like Slapface had probably 30 visual effects and Buhag has like almost 200. So like and, and it's a low budget film. So it took a long time to get it done. But it will be we're color grading it next week and then uh, should have some updates soon about its future. I love to hear that because we're big fans of practical effects. And doesn't it seem like to you, I, I think there's been a real revival of practical effects. It seems like people are moving in that direction um, more so than, than the last several years. I love it. I mean, I couldn't be happier. Like, I, you know, there's nothing quite like a practical monster or, you know, I mean, like and when you're doing splatter movies, those old school effects that were pioneered by yeah. great people like Tom Savini. You know, it's like those pulled up, you know, like there's there's a real big difference. You can feel the mass when there's a blood splatter of like practical yes. blood versus, you know, something digital that always looks no matter how much money they pour into it. It always looks a little bit phony and practical monsters. You just feel them in the tactile. You feel them mm -hmm. in the space along with the actors. And mm -hmm. I think it helps the actors performances so much to actually be in the room with the with the creatures just makes such a big difference oh yeah i could definitely see that and actually you got to interview uh the star from Buhag right recently because she's from columbus trafina wade yeah she was a joy to work with yeah she's uh she's from columbus and ah, she fantastic. uh yeah and so we got a chance to talk to her about it and she was very excited about it she had lovely things to say she didn't really like horror movies prior to making this one and she says she likes them now plus this she she warns me this movie is very scary and i thought well that's you no need to warn me i'm in right yeah that was our goal i think that's moving you know like i i love the fact that people like tony collette and francis Pugh and people you know like willem defoe can do these genre films and like and you know, it, for a long time, it was frustrating that people wouldn't highlight the excellent performances in genre films. Right. I think that's moving now. Um, although in some of the films that we're talking about, like the, you know, the, the it had extraordinary uh, actors who were heralded for their performance. One of the actors we're going to talk about won an Academy Award for a movie he did after the one we're going to talk right. about. And thanks to the director the one that he did, you know, that we are going to talk about. It's very strange. We can talk about that when it comes. Yeah. All right. Well, Boo Hag, put that up. Boo, put Boo Hag on the radar. Uh, but this topic, Brothers, mm -hmm. Brothers in Horror, that was obviously inspired by Slapface. Yeah, which is, if you haven't gotten a chance to see it, you really must. It's a lovely movie. I think that it approaches family trauma in a very um, unique, unsettling, but tender way. And it has a monster that is, it's just a wonderful, spooky, but, you know, I think anytime you have a villain that you actually feel for, as well as are afraid of, when you sort of get that jumble of emotional response to something, it's so much better than that cut and dried evil versus good, I think, in a movie, when it complicates your emotions. And man, Slapface did. Well, thank you very much. That really does mean a lot to me. I, I believe that monsters can hold great complexity, you know, from James Whale's Frankenstein to uh, Tony Todd playing Candyman and so on. You know, there's a lot of nuance in the in the monster. You know, they they um, 
monsters have wants and needs, no matter how terrifying they may seem. You know, I was recently reading an article by Guillermo del Toro about the kaiju, like Godzilla and Mothra and all those creatures. And, you know, they're not evil per se. They're stomping on cities, but they're existing in their primal nature, which I found really exciting. And yes, brothers do figure into our story in a major way. The main characters are an older and a younger brother uh, grieving the loss of their parents. Um, and the monster comes into their world, but these brothers are just barely hanging on economically. And, uh, and the monster exists in contrast to them. They have this really disturbing game that they play, which is the title of the movie Slapface, where when the younger brother gets in trouble, they play this very ritualized game where one where they slap each other equally hard as a punishment game, but a way to connect with one another. And placing that like real domestic violence in contrast with the monster story, you know, kind of has the naturalistic horror and the supernatural elements existing side by side, which I found really, uh, really interesting. And, you know, certainly some of that was inspired by the first film on my list that we'll get to eventually, <laughs> which is the brother's story that I, I remember watching as a little boy and feeling like it was representing aspects of my life because like the kids in Slapface, I, you know, I grew up rural, I grew up in poverty and, you know, watching the first movie on my list, like, it was like, oh my gosh, it represented like, a, I was like, wow, that feels more like my life than a lot of, um, than a lot of the other films that I've seen as much as I love Dawn of the Dead, which is another favorite of mine. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't live in a shopping mall. It's a fantasy. <laughs> it's a, it was, I, I would be in the shopping mall as a kid and be like, wouldn't it be cool if we lived here? And then Dawn of the Dead, you watch that and it fulfills it. But um, some of these other films that we're talking about ground the horror in a, in a, in a, in a familial reality that yeah. I found really touching and sincere and also brings the horror close to home in a way that I found powerful. Right. So Jeremiah has a top five. Mm -hmm. We have a top five, but there's a lot of uh, overlap. Which is good. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll start off with his his number five. Mm -hmm. What you got at number five over there? Well, number five, I have The Endless, which is a Benson Morehouse movie from 2017. I want to go back. That place is not what you think it is. She lied to you. We couldn't be happier. I saw some of things last night. There's something out here, isn't there? Happier. Yeah, there is. Happier. Happier. Who's next? Uh, Benson Morehouse, like they, they kind of have that Richard Linklater slacker energy and they kind of pull that into these almost H.P. Lovecraft like yeah. Elder Gods mysterious stories. Uh, the Endless is one of my favorites of theirs. You know, it's like uh, it is two brothers who for several years have escaped uh, a cult and are trying to get by and like, you know, like you can tell from the way that they live that like affording food every week is like a challenge for them. You know, they like they were living in essentially a crazy commune mm -hmm. and now they're just trying to like readjust a normal life. But one of the brothers just can't do it. And it's like, you know, I know that it was a doomsday cult and all. And I know that everything seemed like it was he heading towards disaster there, but I was much happier there. Like, I felt like there was community there in a way that there isn't in my life here. And the other brother goes like, well, it was a while ago, you know, where it's it it's strange in our memories right now. We may not be remembering it right. Why don't we go back there, check it out, 
maybe you'll see that it's screwed up and then we can go back home or we can do whatever you choose if we love each other. So it's a really precarious situation for the brothers to be in. And the thing I like about Benson Moorhead is that everything feels super grounded and super naturalistic and super real, you know, so that by the time you get to the larger than life strangeness of the environment that they go into, you just kind of accept all of the weirdness, you know, because you're so, because everything else is so based in the truth. And the relationship between the brothers, which is quite tender also, you know, is the foundation of the film. You know, it's like a spiritual crisis between two brothers who didn't, who had an extremely dysfunctional growing up. And they're trying to, you know, I mean, the, the movie is about them going back to this cult and, you know, and the audience wondering if that cult is, if the things they believe in are actually real or not. But the brothers themselves, it's like, they just can't hack it in the real world and you know, need to go back and see what happens yeah. if they go back to the place where they felt safe. Uh, it's a weird movie. You know, and and Benson Moorhead, you know, has like their their fans, and they also have their detractors. I think the people who don't like their movies probably don't like the the breeziness of them. The kind of like, I don't know. They, I mean, they're not Gen X, but I am, and and you know, it's like, and and I, and and yet, like their their philosophy really feels Gen X to me in a way, where it's kind of like, yeah, no one is coming to save you, and uh, and you're kind of like have no real belief system for any of the things that are that are uh, structured but you know but you also want to believe that there's things like love and 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 truth you know mm. and uh, and you're searching for those things so you know uh esoteric horror film but like uh, you know if you're in the mood for like uh something that's like laid back and brainy and ultimately unnerving mm-hmm. you know then uh the endless is uh, a place to go yeah, we're big fans of Benson and Moorhead, and I love, without giving too much away, I love how some films, including this one, connect with other films uh, in their mm. resume. Let's put it that way. I also right. love their brand of humor. Sometimes they oh, work yeah. they work in some very funny scenes amongst this real emotional turmoil. And here, you're right. I love the dynamic between the brothers. There's a conflict uh, in what they believe. Their versions of the there's a conflict in their versions of the past, and I love that. One of the things I love about this movie is how well they um, develop a tension of we have to leave by this time, we have to leave by this time, and one of them is just not going to come. And I think if you, I think it, it there's this primal sort of uh, connection between I need to leave the situation, but I really want you to come with me. And what are you going to do about it? Are you going to just not escape because you don't want to be without this person? Or are you going to leave without them because it doesn't seem like you're going to get them to go with you? And that um, that tension, I think, amps up all of the horror in the film, at least for me. Yeah, and also I will put a plug in for anybody that might have missed their latest, Something in the Dirt. Um, really enjoyed that, and I think it got back to some of the, the humor from their early films that might have gotten away from like a synchronic or yeah. something like that. There wasn't much of the humor in there, but I, I really enjoyed that too. But yeah, we're big fans. The Endless uh, from 2017 is number five for Jeremiah. We've got one from 1987. Oh, a shocker that, uh, that you would have this on our list at number five, and it is The Lost Boys. <laughs> Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. <laughs> You're 
vampire, Michael. My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire. Oh, you wait till Mom finds out, buddy. When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. Michael, they're coming! But there are so many brothers in this movie. You've got Michael and Sam, so that's your core brother situation, and they're being torn apart. And then Sam uh, confides in the Frog Brothers, so there's the brothers that work as a team. They are a single unit, and so that's kind of the ideal for Sam and his brother. But really, Michael's been drawn into a whole other brotherhood with David. And I. so it's really, at which you, you know for certain, at the end, when... The whole reason that they've been sucked into this is because the the big vampire wants a mother to come in and make her boys behave. He that so he's looking to create a very specific brotherhood. I think the the real way to read all of this is gay. That's the real way to read all of this. And I love that about this movie is that really underneath of it it's sort of uh heteronormativity trying to take over what has otherwise been kind of this free and and very interesting lifestyle. But I love that about this movie. I love that Joel Schumacher made a movie that was so clearly gay, clearly so, and yet nobody read it that way in 1987, which is crazy. But I also wanted to point out that there's a lot of very handsome brothers. I was going to say that that's not the way teenage hope probably uh, probably no, I did not <laughs> consume this movie. I was like, bite him, David. I really want you to bite him. Yeah, I agree. I I, I always found the Lost Boys to feel super queer. You know, it's like it's just all that hair. You know, all, all that like poofy hair and like uh, all the wind blowing through that poofy hair and the beautiful soundtrack and the um, and the spirited locations and. Uh, and yeah, the the relationship between the the main brothers is tr- is touching and complex. The lost boys themselves, I, I do think of them to be a, a loving fraternity. You know, it's like you you know you, who doesn't want to be a vampire when you're watching that film? Because it's uh, you either want to be the vampires because then you're absolutely delightful in a non sparkly way, uh, <laughs> or you're the Frog Brothers, which I also would embrace because anybody who watched that movie and was like the proud, nerdy outsider, you know, could embrace the Frog Brothers because they were all in 100% on their thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Frog Brothers knew who they were. They weren't going to apologize about it. They were total nerds, total, not beyond nerds. They were like outsiders and they really knew they, they were on, on the true w- wavelength of what was going on. So I loved all of them. I loved the sexy vampires. I loved the um, the super nerds, the, the super outsiders of the Frog Brothers. They were all a yeah. joy to watch. And it's also, it's got a great late 80s timestamp. And am I wrong? Was this the beginning of Corey Mania? Uh, it might have been, might yeah, have been? because the, the two Corys were, of course, in it together. Yeah, and right, then, yeah. And the Corey Haim character had that Rob Lowe poster yeah. um, on the wall. And then, of course, there's the there's the saxophone player. Again, I mean, I'm, oh, so, saxophone I'm so proud of, Schu- of, Schu- of Schumacher for making this movie the way he made it. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. But also, back to the Frog Brother for a second, one of the things that I love about them is that if it was just one person, if it was just one frog boy, he would be so unhappy, but he's never lonely. He's never alone, and they don't have to worry about what other people think of him, because they always have the other one. I love the Frog Brothers. I mean, they're not the ones I liked the best when I first saw it. I'm not going to lie. But. Uh, that was Teenage Hope tapping you on the shoulder there. That was uh, That's our number five from 87, The Lost Boys. I think, uh, do we have the same number four? We do. Look at this. This is a classic. Holy cow, we do. Yeah. Number four from 1982. This is a Frank... Henenlotter classic, of course. It's Basket Case. What is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket? 
What's in the basket? Easter eggs? What's in the basket? My brother. Open it, if you dare. <laughs> basket case. Yes, like a fine wine. The song gets weirder <laughs> every year. Uh, 1982. Uh, yeah. So from the glossy, beautiful piers of uh, the West Boy straight down into the toilet with, <laughs> uh, with Frank Henenlotter, who, uh, who is one of the great maestros of, uh, of super strange schlock. Basket, he, I, I like a lot of his films, but Basket Case, I think, is his uh, crown jewel. Agreed. Uh, it is Brothers. And the, uh, there is a young man carrying around a basket wherever he goes, uh, <laughs> another lonely outsider, you know, in the big city and what's inside the basket, but his uh, monstrous, crazily deformed brother Belial. And they're, uh, they're working together to do a series of murders to kill off all of the doctors who screwed up back in the day mm-hmm. and, and made Belial what he is. Uh, so Basket Case is a somebody gets killed in an interesting way every 10 minutes story. But what makes it beyond the um, no budget schlockfest is the that the brothers genuinely care for each other. They're both extremely interesting characters. The monster is a wonderful low budget practical effect that has real nuance. And the older brother gives a really good performance. You know, it's like... Uh, it's kind of like you get like uh, the brothers are kind of both versions of Lon Chaney Jr. and the Wolfman, the tormented protagonist who is struggling to get by and the and the id that is uh, is aching to destroy. So Basket Case, uh, which had a couple sequels, uh, is uh, a Frank Henenlotter classic from back in the day. Yeah. And give a shout out to uh, Kevin. Let me pronounce this right. Kevin Van Hentenrick plays Dwayne. And you're right about the the practical effects with Belial. It's a I mean, sure you can look at it and say, oh, you know, the the uh, processes have have improved so much, but it's still to this day an iconic image when you see that image of Belial. Yeah, there's no question about it. Plus that name, I love that name. Yeah, yeah. Like it's such a great evil twin name. And and I, you know, I, I do think that that. Um, it, you know, it's, it is. It's that sort of Jekyll and Hyde, the id, you know, he's carrying around his dirty laundry with him wherever he goes, sort of a situation. And and it's funny and it's fun. And it's one of those movies where um, it. I think that the, the low budget actually makes it much better. It makes it um, believably seedy because they're in that very seedy New York City apartment building. Super seedy. You totally buy it. And I think um, there's a, a weird charm to all of Hen and Lauder's films. There's like this weird sweetness that you don't expect when you see what you're seeing. And the first time we got that was because this was his feature debut, which is actually pretty impressive. Yeah, and I love to think back to audiences in 1982 because it wouldn't it wouldn't last very long today. But just the mystery of what's in the basket, you know, what's in the box, what's in the box, <laughs> you want to see in there, and you didn't have it. it. Couldn't go viral back then, so people had to go to the theater and see what was in that basket. I love thinking back to how those those audiences uh, consumed it then. Yeah, I love this movie. I mean, it's just it's fun. It's one to watch all the time. So both of our number fours, Basket Case from 82. All right, so when we move up to number three, we'll move on because it turns out that Jeremiah's number three is our number one. So we will be talking about that. We'll go right to our number three from 2014. Yeah, we love this one. It's Good Night, Mommy. Mama, who can open cold night? 
yeah, this is the original because there was a recent remake with Naomi Watts, but we we much prefer this one. It is so much creepier. I think the new one uh, pulled the punch of the ending a little bit, and this one is is so creepy with the brothers and the images and the the isolated setting. Uh, sort of not really claustrophobic, but uh, they, they seem to be very alone as as the mom is recovering from these mysterious injuries, and the two brothers. Uh, decide that that's not really their mommy. The children, Elias and Lucas, and they are actually played by two kids named Elias and Lucas Schwartz, uh, twin brothers. I love me some twin horror. And this, <laughs> you know, and, and I hope that I'm not giving away too much by saying this, this bears a lot of similarity to one of our favorite movies from the 70s, The Other. But I think that if you watch this movie and think, well, I've already figured out the twist because I've seen The Other, that I, to me, that's not the twist that the film relies on. That's not the, the tension that this film relies on. And the the moments of weirdness within this film with the that they don't try to explain. I always appreciate that when they don't try to explain certain things like stuff that they find in caves or this bug yeah. collection that right. they have. Really weird visuals. And yeah. it's just that it it you know, they don't explain those. It just gives you a sense that there's there's definitely something wrong here. So in the end, when it goes really haywire, you're like, Oh, maybe maybe mom should have seen this coming. I love the writing here. I love the visuals of it. Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz are the writers directors who also went on to make The Lodge, yeah. a movie that we love. And I think to the back to back, I don't think they trust children, <laughs> <laughs> especially twin children. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. It's increasingly creepy um, with, with the visuals, and it just looks gorgeous. I mean, the cinematography, both inside the house yeah. and then outside, fantastic. Yeah. And it leads to a, a very much, I think, I think we both do, much more effective ending in the original than in the remake. Have you seen this one? No, but I'm going to now. It sounds amazing. I, I remember seeing the trailer and then uh, saying to myself that it looked immersive and strange and singular. Uh, but yeah, I know, I know what my homework assignment is for tonight. <laughs> so number three for us, the original Goodnight Mommy from 2014. All right, good news at number two, we both have the same one. And it is a great one, and this is from 2001. Director, gone too soon, Bill Paxton. This is frailty. They were raised to obey their father. Go to see Homer. To love him, to trust him. Night, boys, sleep tight. Don't let those bed bugs bite. Until. Wake up, I've got something to tell you. What's wrong? There are demons among us. I can see the demons while other people can. I'm scared, Dad. God will be sending a list of the first seven demons. These are people's names. And they'll look like people. They're not. You're crazy! Only demons should fear me. You're not a demon, are you? The late, great Bill Paxton. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful film. It's so good that it makes you wish that Bill Paxton had directed more. Exactly. I feel like he had a lot more to say. He, there was a Joe Art Lansdale film that he wanted to make. You know, it's there were other things he wanted to do. And great actor and surprisingly extremely talented filmmaker. So Frailty, uh, there's uh, two boys and their dad, and they live in uh, the Midwest. And their dad has a vision from uh, higher power that says that there are demons in the world and it is their responsibility to go out and kill them. Boys, got bad news. We got to go out and kill some demons. Uh, I don't want to do it, but it's the Lord's word. Now, the brothers disagree on uh, whether dad is 
going completely crazy, uh, taking an axe and chopping up humans. Uh, or if the higher power told him, told Noah to build an ark. I mean, that sounds pretty crazy too. Yeah. Two of every animal, put it in the ark, you know, or kill your firstborn son, mm -hmm. whatever it may be. You know, uh, the, the film does a really brilliant job of um, taking some of those Old Testament ideas and putting them into a contemporary context and asking, you know, if that happened, you know, the person who was told the mission would be perceived as completely out of their minds. Um, and the movie does an extraordinary job of making you wonder throughout. You know, it, it doesn't, it keeps you going from one foot to the other of, uh, of whether dad has lost it or not, because both of the brothers seem extremely credible. And Bill Paxton plays the performance. He, he doesn't do kabuki acting. He plays it as if he's struggling oh, yeah. with this uh, decision. Uh, so both of the kids are amazing. And Bill Paxton also gives a truly powerful performance. And it captures the complexity of a family dynamic where, uh, again, like spiritual crisis, but also, you know, when you're a child, you kind of have to do what your parent says, you know, you, you don't really have uh, autonomy or choice, you know, but if you perceive your, the parental figure is doing something wrong, you know, you're going to push back against that somehow in, in a kid-like way. And it creates a rift between these two brothers who love each other, you know, and, and, uh, so as a family dynamic story, it's just incredibly powerful. Uh, it also captures a certain flavor of, uh, you know, I'm not sure if the story text takes place in Texas or not, but it has a Texarkana mm -hmm. Midwestern mode of storytelling. And it feels grounded. You feel like these characters actually have dirt under their fingernails, mm -hmm. which you don't always feel when you see this kind of story. And they don't really feel like actors, you know, they, they you, you feel like the behavior in that story is pretty strong. I don't love the frame story with Matthew McConaughey, who eventually went on to become a truly great actor and stuff like True Detective and was a great actor before. Once people realized he was an amazing character actor, they gave him great character roles. And I think McConaughey, they hadn't quite figured it out yet with him. And the, so the frame story with him in Powers Booth, you know, I'm kind of like, well, let's get back to the, yeah. the parents and the kids. Uh, however, the stuff with the parent and the kids is so strong and so striking and so powerful and so moving and so unpredictable, you know, like, you know, you know that it's not going to end well, but how it will end is uncertain, you know, and, and the movie like definitely held me agape uh, up to the the climax of that story. Yeah, yeah. It's and this is, of course, every time we talk about this movie, we have to point out that Bill Paxton back in the day, directed the music video for Fish Heads. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, I think you're exactly right. It's it's one of the one of the many reasons we're so sad to see him go so young because he truly was a talented director and you had to think about the other films that he that he could have made. But it's a great story that you mentioned the the religious aspect. It, it creates such a, a a blur between faith and extremism and boils it down to one very intimate family. And I think, like you say, the performances make that so compelling. And one of the things I love about one of the things I love about the the brother dynamic is is the age difference because the older brother is an adolescent. And so he's first of all, he's automatically inclined to rebel against what his father is doing and saying, where his younger brother is still quite innocent and very much, you know, whatever dad wants. And 
And so the, it, it creates a very tender you know, sort of yearning for between each brother. They just want the other one to stop it and do what they're doing. And it's it's really quite heartbreaking. And it's also the moments when they're finding their demon. It's scary. Yeah. It's it tense is and scary. scary, especially when they go in the basement there. That Oh, yeah, it definitely is scary and creepy. It is, and I think that Paxton's performance, because he's ever earnest and upbeat and he doesn't want to do it, but he has to do it, and come on, kids— um, is one of the things that makes it so scary. Exactly. It's it's such a great atmosphere, really, from start to finish. And that is Frailty from 2001, number two for both of us. All right, so we get to number one. We've got to go back to Jeremiah's list before we get to ours because we have that one uh, also at different spots on the, on the list. So this one somehow didn't make ours, even though it's a great film. So what is at the top of your mountain there? Yeah, my number one is Phantasm uh, from 1979, Don Coscarelli's uh, bonkers classic. <laughs> uh, Phantasm. Is it alive? There was nobody driving. Whatever it is, if this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Phantasm. You know, the first time I saw it, it just careens from event to event in a way that, like, could be perceived as uh, as dreamlike. But it has its own really rich mythology to it and its own strange dream logic. So the supernatural threat is that there is a uh, a very tall man at the mortuary <laughs> who um, may be snatching bodies and maybe killing people. But what does that have to do with the little Jawa creatures that are running around in little hoods? And what does that have to do with a giant spherical ball with knives in it that's yeah. spiraling around, like sticking people in the head? There are uh, brothers who have to solve this mystery uh, because, one, indeed, one of their brothers has recently died under mysterious circumstances, and they are investigating. The older brother, resentfully, uh, has to take on the role of being the parent, even though he'd much rather work on his muscle car Barracuda out in the garage. He loves his younger brother. Uh, but he didn't sign up for this. He didn't sign up for being the dad. And the younger brother, uh, played by A. Michael Baldwin, was unlike any child protagonist I had seen until that time. You know, and, and it's very rare in horror films for a for a child protagonist to be handled with such uh, strangeness. You know, it's like he is old beyond his years. Like he will grab the shotgun shell tie it to a hammer and knock and blow the door down because uh, because they live in a very irresponsible household where they've got guns lying around <laughs> and beer and wood paneling and, yeah. you know, but I was like, that's my house. You know, I was like, that feels mm -hmm. like where I grew up. Like that feels like what I would do under those given circumstances. When I watched that movie and I saw Mike running around on a scooter, I was like, yeah, I skulk around in the graveyard and I, you know, have these knives and, you know, and these crazy friends, you know, like, uh, yeah, I have that Vietnam vet friend, you know, he didn't drive the ice cream truck, but he was, uh, he would come over and play guitar, you know, like, uh, 
all that stuff felt so real to me yeah. and so much like how I grew up. And, you know, when you see a film that, that speaks to how you grew up, it just takes your heart, you know, and I've always loved Phantasm in that way because it took where I grew up and given circumstances of my childhood uh, and, uh, and then transported it into the most hyper surreal strangeness. Uh, and that's the other good thing about the movie is every, you know, every new adventure deepens the mystery of what's going on. Uh, I thought that Don Coscarelli made an instant classic, mm -hmm. low budget gem. Uh, and there's really nothing else like it. You know, it's one of those love it or hate it. You know, Phantasm is uniquely one of a kind. And for my money, it was like a gigantic inspiration. And, you know, it's weird. I was always kind of expecting people to bring it up when talking about Slapface because it was such a huge inspiration. Uh, but it, it never really came up and I was kind of surprised. Uh, but I love that movie and I'd love to meet Don Coscarelli someday and say thank you so much for uh, uh, opening up my imagination when I was a little boy. Yeah, it sounds like we're somewhat close to the same age because I think I have the same memories about this movie and the way it looked mm. and the way it, it spoke to to things about my childhood. And also, you remember, what, eight eight or so years before um, the puzzle box in Hellraiser, we got that orb. And that, right. along with the tall man, those two things have remained staples of horror. All you got to do is show a picture of the tall man, show a picture of the orb, and uh, you really, I don't think about the sequels. I think about this one. Yeah, well, Angus Krim was amazing. He was absolutely perfect in that role. And he had that great vo boy, had that great <laughs> voice. And the way they shot him, of course, always at a, at a high angle, so he was just looming over you. And that, yeah, the, the orb... You know, the the mind that came up with that, that we have that as a Christmas tree ornament, by the way. It's an excellent Christmas tree ornament. Everyone should have one. But there are so many iconic images in this movie that I think, um, you know, it's easy to throw away. It's easy to not recognize all of the just sort of genius madness afoot in this film. Yeah, truly one of a kind. And uh, a shout out to Angus Grimm. I was fortunate enough to have produced a movie many years ago called Satan Hates You, where Angus Grimm and Reggie Bannister were both in it. Wow. And Reggie wow. Bannister nice. is exactly the same as Reggie in the movies. Like, you know, like we, they say, don't meet your heroes. But Reggie was the exact same guy that you saw in Phantasm series. You know, he's uh, he is that character and that character is him. And then Angus Grimm, thankfully, is not the tall man. Was not. Maybe rest in peace. He was a very old school gentleman. You know, he felt like old Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way that he would approach the entire profession was to say, wow, don't, isn't it extraordinary that we all get to be a part of this club where we get to play make believe and, uh, and, and it's all here before us. And, uh, uh, and, he, and he was just such a class act and such a lovely gentleman. I was so sad when he uh, passed away. But yeah. I was so privileged to have had the chance to well, uh, work with him, uh, a great man. I'm curious, did he realize the icon pedestal that he was on among horror fans? I, I think that he grew to understand it, you know? Like, I, he just wound up talking to enough people who said to him how meaningful these films were in their lives. You know, not just me. I mean, there are so many people mm -hmm. who love that film. Uh, so I think at first he was just like, this is like a fun lark that I'm doing with my friends. I really like Don Coscarelli and those guys, you know, and I'm sure I'll play the bad guy in our little movie, <laughs> you know, and then and then just to see it continue for year after year after year, you know, and for um, older fans and younger fans to all find it. I think it really touched his heart. You know, nice. he was, you know, he was, um, 
I think really won over and very touched by and accepting of the the love and generosity and grace of the fans. I think he really appreciated it. Well, that's great. That's great. How how awesome it is that you got to uh, you got to have that experience. And that is your number one for Brothers Phantasm from 1979. Okay, when we move up to our number one, then we go back because it's also Jeremiah's number three, and this is one that uh, sort of has some some new relevance thanks to a, a recent remake. But the original goes back to 19. 19- 88, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. By every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. They share everything. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. Doctor, you've cured me. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. For working on mutant women. Radical technology was required. Something radical is definitely required. Dead ringers. Separation can be a, a terrifying thing. My gosh, dead ringers. Um, it's a it's a classic. I just watched it again, uh, like a, a week ago. Like I I, I watched the um, Amazon Prime yeah. series and, and absolutely loved it. I was really taken yeah, by we it. Did great too. directing, beautifully shot. Like a re, you know a really wonderful reimagination uh, of the Cronenberg uh, original. But then I was like, let's go back and look at the 88 because I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I was always really struck by Jeremy Irons and his absolutely extraordinary performance. And I think he knew it too, because when he won the Academy Award for Reversal of Fortune, he thanked David Cronenberg, <laughs> not Barbet Schroeder, who directed Reversal of Fortune. <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, Cronenberg really is good with actors. There have been so many good performances, great performances in his films. Like there's a whole lineup of like amazing actors james woods jeff goldblum jennifer jason lee and indeed jeremy irons playing these twins these brothers and the thing that he did with such sensitivity was at first glance you can't tell the twins apart you know like uh they both look like jeremy irons they both dress like the mantle brothers you know it's like you don't look at them and say oh this is the older one and the younger one the alpha and the beta until you until you inhabit the space with them, uh, because they are so united and so closely locked together. But then when you spend time with them in the film, you see their differences, and their differences become a chasm that create the tragedy of the movie because like they are different and they are and they are not united. They are not one. You know, they are two. You know, they are two different people. And yet the strangeness of the movie is you see them kind of unable to separate in that way they keep wanting to crawl back into each other and be Mm -hmm. the one you know i thought it's like there's no there's not as much overt body horror in the in in dead ringers as you see in like videodrome with james wood sticking his hand into his stomach but the body horror of the film are the brothers you know and uh, indeed they are twin gynecologists so like they you know the misogyny of their belief they are operating on mutant women and their crazy tools certainly have an aspect of body horror, but I think the real body horror is Jeremy Irons' performance and uh, and the way that that movie builds to an uh, absolutely tragic denouement, you know, yeah. where it's like, I, I, I need to be one, not two. It's like shockingly upsetting to watch. And, and you leave with the feeling of like, oh my God, this was a dense, thoughtful masterpiece you know one that has so held up over the years david kornberg's favorite of mine oh yeah us too and in uh, this movie is so driven by jeremy irons performance and it was fascinating to me i read that i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure i have this right 
he, in his own mind, in his own method for playing the Twins, kept them separate by scenes because when he was playing one, he would keep his weight on the balls of his feet, and on the other one, he would put his weight back on his heels. That's how he kept them separate in his own mind, which I thought was fascinating. So subtle. It had to be Beverly on the balls of his feet. <laughs> I believe it was Beverly. I love this movie. I um, and you know I watch. Uh, I have a twin sister, and we just we always watch twin movies. Like if there is one, we watch it together, and we are uh, highly judgmental uh, because so often they're they're the polar opposites. You have an evil twin, and you have a good twin, and and uh, the the performances that um, you know really take us are the ones where they're just two individuals who happen to share the exact same life experience like they're not the same person but they have so much in common because they have all of the same experiences every single moment of their lives and that is i think what jeremy irons does really well and often if you have a especially a horror movie about twins the the core concept is separation anxiety that's the the tension that fuels it and that's the tension that fuels this that they want at different times to be separate and at the same time, they're quite convinced that they cannot be. And there's that the tension of that longing to be alone and to the belief that they just can't survive alone. Um, and that's that element, I think, they picked up beautifully in uh, the series with with uh, with Rachel Weiss, who was glorious in this. And um, so we did watch that. We watch one TV show a year. Uh, because we're film critics and we watch 300 movies a year, and so we really don't have the chance. And so we're very uh, specific about the one. And the first time we saw a trailer for Dead Ringers, we're like, oh, I think we found our 2023 TV show. <laughs> and we're glad we watched it. It was it was amazing. It was, and gave a different aspect to the same story, which, by the way, both are loosely based on real-life twins, Stuart and Cyril Marcus. They were twin gynecologists in New York who were found dead uh, at a very relatively young age. And I believe if you want to learn more about it, of course, there's the Internet. There's also the novel Twins. Fascinating and weird real life story. This is one of the few films where I was actually happy that the body horror wasn't more explicit. So I, for example, I love The Brood. I love the brood. I love, yeah, of course, the moment of one. revelation. I love where she's eating the. Pl- I like. I love the the graphic nature of the body horror in this one. But there's the scene. You're behind the doctor. You see a barefoot on either side of him. You can see her excruciated little face, and then you see the tools next to him. So maybe it doesn't have the same effect on the two of you. But I had to get up and leave. I'm like, oh my god. So I thought that the sort of subtlety that in an area where Cronenberg's not usually quite subtle, it worked brilliantly in this film. Plus the red scrubs. I don't know who came up with that, but that was gorgeous. No, I, I totally get it because it it made me squirm enough to think I can't even imagine. Yeah, because you mentioned the body horror of uh, maybe is dialed down a bit. But yeah, I mean, just the shot of those implements yeah. is is some body horror for yeah. sure. And you can see her barefoot as you're seeing those. Oh, God. Oh, it's so, yeah, it's completely unnerving. And when you feel like the operations are going wrong, you know, it's like deeply disturbing, you know, a deeply disturbing premise. I was very impressed by not only Jeremy Irons' great performance as an actor, but when uh, it was one of those movies where like 20 actors turned down the role because they didn't want to play gynecologists, you know, they were like, can the twins be lawyers or something? <laughs> and until finally Jeremy Irons came on board and was like, yes, I understand what you're doing and I'm game on for what you're trying to say. His only qualification, which I thought was very moving and very sincere of him, was he was like, uh, the only thing I want is I want to be able to meet every actress 
who I have to do these scenes with as their gynecologist because I want to meet them first so they so that they know you know who is the other actor or their scene partner who's going to be really like invasive in their space mm -hmm. and I thought that was extremely thoughtful of him yeah you know and, and and just like to create a safe space for actor to actor I thought it was very they just spoke to Jeremy Irons and his, not only his commitment to the roles but also like with um so much crazy shit that happens on movies and so much dangerous stuff that goes on you know it's like for him to be like no we're, we're not doing that on this film I want I care deeply about like the that the other actor feels protected and safe around me well, especially uh, in, in very 80s. dangerous given circumstances I thought it was really cool it's one more reason to love Jeremy Irons yeah. like I needed one more reason <laughs> and yeah. a shout out to whoever because I, I guess a couple of early uh, titles were twins and Gemini but whoever decided on dead ringers perfect Perfectly cool done. title. Yeah, very cool. And also, uh, we didn't mention Genevieve Bujold, who's also oh, she's big, great in yeah, it. She is I mean, part of brilliant this performance. Yeah, exactly. And that is Dead Ringers, our number one, and Jeremiah's number three from 1988, the original. But by all means, check out the new series because that is worth it as well. Good list of brothers in horror, man. That was great, Jeremiah. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was so much fun talking about these films with you guys. Uh, it's always a joy to. Uh, chat with fellow cinephiles and and you guys are such a great team it's such oh, a delight thank you well we mentioned uh the film that uh, you're working on um and anything else you want to say about that or where we can get a hold of you on socials or where can people uh, catch up with what you're doing yeah well boohag will certainly update the socials once once uh we know the next step for this fall you know there's a bunch of things that are happening and uh, as they unfold we'll let everyone know um, since there aren't very many Jeremiah Kips, I'm very easily Googleable. <laughs> but also, like uh, my main socials are uh, Facebook and Instagram, which I update frequently. Uh, I, I often talk about the the movies that I've been watching and actors who right. I revere and what I what I'm up to. Um, and then, uh, if people want to see my film about brothers, uh, Slapface is on. Uh, there's a Shutter original, also on AMC Plus, Amazon Prime, and a bunch of other streaming outlets. Uh, and indeed, there are twin sisters in that as well. Two of the bullies are uh, twins, Bianca and Chiara D'Ambrosio, who are wonderful actors also. Anyway, um, we'll, we'll see you know, We'll see the next steps of the Boohag, and do check out Slapface. Yeah, yeah. if you haven't, definitely recommend it from us. Check out Slapface. You can always find us on the easiest way on Twitter, Fright Club Pod. Also, we've got that dedicated Fright Club podcast group on Facebook. I just put in a request to join. Also, you can find us on Mad Wolf Columbus on Facebook and Instagram. And the main website where you can find this podcast, our other weekly podcast called The Screening Room, and all of our, our written movie reviews, that's all there at madwolf.com. All right, so we'll get this one edited and up very soon, but looking ahead to the next edition of Fright Club Live, what do we got on the schedule? We're going to watch the outstanding film Swallow, which I know we'll probably be talking about again in, in a few in a few weeks. We're going to do like Hitchcock-inspired horror, and I, I feel like Swallow is going to make that list as well but i love that movie and we're going to talk about housewives in horror and so that's what we have on the slate for the next live event all right that'll be on june 9th mm -hmm. live at gateway film center columbus ohio our home away from home by all means if you're in the area we'd love to have you always a great crowd most of the time they like the movie <laughs> not always <laughs> but most of the time it's always a, a great a great time uh, for fright club live so keep in touch if you can. Until next time, enjoy the movies. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Hey, this is horror filmmaker Jeremiah Kipp. Stay frightful, my friends. Yay! Yay!